Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm glad to be back in conversation with award-winning journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. In today's conversation, we'll discuss a growing debate about what's actually happening in Canada's economy and who's responsible for its sluggishness. It's a debate that we hosted at The Hub this past weekend with competing essay about the Trudeau government's economic record and which spilled out this week with Finance Minister Christia Freeland pointing a finger at Canada's business community for the country's productivity problems and it pointing its finger right back at government policy. We'll also cover, if, as time permits, the Finance Minister's latest $200 million overtures to Canadians for groceries and housing and what this pre-budget announcement might tell us about the budget's eventual direction. Amanda, thanks as always for joining us. Great to see you. I mentioned that last weekend we published long-form essays by Tyler Meredith, a former senior economic advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau and Minister Freeland, and Jake Fuss, an economist at the Fraser Institute, that reflected competing positions on the Trudeau government's overall economic record. I'd encourage listeners and viewers to check them out. I thought of them this week, Amanda, because in a press conference, Finance Minister Freeland reflected a lot of the same arguments as Meredith concerning GDP and wage growth, government investments, and so on. How should we think about the government's record? Where do you come down on this debate? I mean, I think uh, it'll, it, history, I think, will have an asterisk uh, on this government's record because of the pandemic and pandemic related spending. So uh, I think in a way, uh, the pure economic kind of uh, you know report card will be a little bit difficult to decipher. When it comes, though, to laying the groundwork for growth, which in the end, we can agree, uh, is really the role of governments, um, you know, along with law and order, safety issues. Um, allowing for economic growth is the way to maximize the potential of uh, of the humans, which is really what we're here for. So um, how have they done on that front? I, again, I, I guess I would say, Sean, it feels slightly unfair <laughs> to, you know, blame the last runner in a long relay race uh, when every runner before has stumbled over the hurdles, um, because this is not a new problem. Canada's uh, competitiveness and productivity problem is decades and decades older than you. It's older than me. Um, it's been something that we've been watching for a long time. The problem has been very well described, and yet I have yet to see any kind of practical, clear. There isn't one single thing, but I have even yet to see any kind of prescription from anybody on either side of the aisle about what to do about it. So I think Canadians kind of hear it and they say, "Well, what, is it business to blame? Is it government to blame?" My answer to that is yes. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's a great segue to my next question, because I, I think you're right. Tyler Meredith's essay for The Hub was quite measured and fair. It reflected both a short and long term perspective. He acknowledged, for instance, that non-residential business investment has dropped like a rock under the Trudeau government. But he mostly attributed it to changing economics within oil and gas development. Business, on the other hand, has claimed that government has played a, a big role in contributing to a stagnant business investment. 
How should we think about the decline of business investment over the past eight years or so in your mind? So I think that is actually a really good reminder of how uh, concentrated the numbers are and are, in fact, our GDP numbers uh, and our wealth is uh, in a few sectors. So if we do see a decline in a sector like resources, uh, oil and gas in particular, you will see it writ large into the data. Um, and the thing that, you know, Tiff Macklem was talking about this this week, and he he pointed out, which I think is important to remember, these issues are not true for very small Canadian businesses. Um, the folks that start, that have ideas and that start businesses are as productive as anybody on the planet. We do not have unproductive, uncompetitive entrepreneurs. That's just not a thing. Our small businesses historically have ranked well competitively uh, with global firms in Silicon Valley, in Israel, you name it. We, we rank. It's as we get bigger in size that we run into issues where we do begin to see business investment drop off. So I would say, yes, when the business community says the government is to blame because there's a lack of clarity, there's a lack of regulatory surety uh, because we don't trust them on a number of issues, including taxation, th those are genuine things. You know, if we say, why don't businesses invest? You should assume it's not personal. You should assume it's because the, the landscape is pointing them in that direction, that it's more rational from uh, the point of view of what they're there for. And they're, they have, uh, of course, very you know, specifically designed kind of outcomes and roles is to buy back stock or issue dividends and not make big risky capital outlays in their own business. But what I would say, is, so yes, there is a kind of a regulatory underpinning. The flip side of that though is, could businesses do more? And I guess where historically there's been a temptation to say what government could do is throw Canadian businesses to the wolves, really. Um, we know that businesses that trade are more competitive. They're more efficient, ones that have to compete globally. Though maybe the answer is really blunt and you just make all of our businesses compete globally. Uh, no more protections for uh, industries that are currently protected. Maybe that would do it. But boy, you could see a bit of messiness on the way to whatever nirvana is on the other side of that. <laughs> just a ton of insight there, Amanda, as is, is always uh, prompts so many different thoughts in my mind, just on the observation about the benefits of trade exposure in terms of inducing investment and productivity. I think, for instance, of the 1985 McDonald Royal Commission, which, of course, famously recommended bilateral free trade for Canada. And there's this famous line in the commission report in which they say in the increasingly global economy, there's no place to hide. And of course, for large parts of our economy, Canadian government policy effectively affirmed this idea that there ought not to be any places to hide. But there are some big exceptions in our economy that remain protected. And, and one wonders, as you were saying earlier, we've been attempting various policy responses to these productivity woes that don't seem to have material effect. One of the levers that is left to policymakers that hasn't by and large been used is opening up some of these protected sectors, including banking and airlines and, and, and telecommunications, which is a good segue to my next observation. We're speaking today on February 8th. Bell, of course, has announced pretty significant layoffs. And incidentally, Amanda, they attribute it precisely to some of the points that you raised. Their statement today cited, quote, an increasingly unsupportive federal government that has, quote, hampered the industry with regulatory decisions that discourage investment, unquote. Why don't you talk a bit about the significance of today's announcement and how it factors into some of these bigger trends that we've been talking about every couple of weeks now for some time, including but not limited to the increasingly fraught relationship between business and government in Canada? 
Yeah, a theme that you and I definitely have been talking about and that's of concern, I think. Um, you know, the, the BCE announcement, which is very focused on its Bell Media platform, which is operating at a loss um, and includes the desired sale of almost half of their regional radio stations, um, really is, as you say, framed in the necessity of doing it because of the business case. And that's hard to argue with. Uh, you know, when, we're not in, I don't think anybody on, in policy making land or elsewhere is in the business of telling um, a publicly run institution, a public institution, um, that they should, uh, you know, stay in businesses that, uh, that aren't warranted. Except, and here's the exception, of course, uh, are these big industries like telecom, like banking, like airlines, um, that historically have been granted uh, great privileges. So our limited airwaves, um, of course, were, uh, were given to a limited number of, of players. And in exchange for the privileges came these responsibilities. And the responsibility was um, these kind of social prescriptions. So in the case of airlines, regional routes that they might not choose. Um, in the case of uh, media companies, as we all know, it was this idea that there would be um, national news footprints. Uh, the, the reality is that the model that made that also profitable for them, that was the nice little sort of dividend for these companies. They also could make money doing this social good. That's changed. It's hard to make money doing it these days. And that's because, of course, we haven't figured out, and the Hub has done some really good work on this. We don't know what the new model is. We don't actually know the answer to the, the Googles and the Netflix and the Metas of the world. Um, and so, you know, these aren't the last buggy whip manufacturers. They're the last buggy manufacturers. And we don't know what the Model T looks like. We don't know what the next thing is. Um, we, we hope we're seeing signs of it. Um, players like the Hub would be, of course, at top of the list of you know, how, how do you get trusted news and journalism? But that's, you know, it still leaves these legacy players with something to do. So I would say anybody who simplifies this issue, it, I think does a disservice to everybody involved. This is complex. It's complex on the business side. It's complex on the government side. I don't think that the, the business should oversimplify it either. Government's not to blame. Um, but there are realities that this is hard and they will, you know, Canadians will see a lot of finger pointing, I think. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. I do think today's announcement is significant, Amanda, to the extent that it signifies the unwinding of a grand bargain between government and major parts of our economy that has really been at the kind of core of Canada's industrial structure, you know, for maybe as long as 100 years. As you kind of allude, we've had a public policy regime, which has effectively amounted to a grand bargain between government and telecommunications and banking and other, and other key sectors, in, in effect, in which government said, we'll limit competition, we'll you know, provide to a certain extent kind of regulated profits. But in exchange, we're going to ask your industry and, and your companies to not take a narrow profitability lens to corporate decision making, that there will be at some level a kind of the expectation that you're accounting for the national interest. And 
that model worked reasonably well in a large, sparsely populated country. We managed to get telecommunications infrastructure in rural and remote parts of the country that we probably wouldn't have gotten if companies were subject to stronger competition. We got you know, a more stable banking sector than other parts of the world, which kind of had traded off dynamism in exchange for, for stability. And we learned the hard way in 2008 that stability can be undervalued. But I think for a whole host of reasons, including the rise of digital streaming services, when it comes to companies like Bell and fintech, when it comes to our banking sector, it increasingly feels like neither side of that grand bargain can kind of live up to its previous commitments. And yet both sides don't really seem to know what the new framework looks like. As you say, we still have government admonishing those companies like they might have in the old days. And you have businesses rather saying to government, you need to do something. We need you to be more supportive. And government saying, well, we can't because the underlying market conditions have changed. And and so, yeah, I, I wonder if this is the beginning of the end of that kind of industrial structure and the opportunity for a more dynamic competition-driven economy that can hopefully get at some of the productivity issues that have, as you said at the outset, Amanda, been a, a challenge for the country, you know, far before the Trudeau government took office. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because on the one hand, um, of course, we need that to happen. We need large um, anti-competitive firms and we our own competition commissioner has concluded that that's what we have. Our biggest entities are bigger than ever uh, they they lack competition. New entrants are down. All of it, of course, the, the marks of anti-competitive behavior, bad for consumers, bad for innovation. We need that to be shaken up. I guess it's, it, this is a, a really good p- place to have this conversation, Sean, because we also need, I would put in quotes, uh, some of the services that the that telecom companies have offered. When we think about the value of news and we think about trusted sources and we think about the underpinnings of a democratic society, these are essentials. They're not, they're not nice to have. These are important. And Netflix, Google, Meta, they're not offering them. They never have been in that role. They are, they are purveyors of different forms of content, but they're not trusted sources. Uh, and so the question becomes, do we have consensus? And how do we, in, your, in that kind of worldview that you're describing, where it becomes more fragmented, more dynamic, uh, definitely uh, probably more agile, and, and there will be great benefits to consumers and the economy, do we lose that consensus on policymaking? And how do we, and I guess one place we, we know this has happened is, can you imagine, I mean, there was a time, not that long ago, 15 years ago, where the, the idea that the CBC could be irrelevant, we might not need a, a public broadcaster, wouldn't really have gotten much purchase because people understood that you do need, you know, we used to say Germany has four public broadcasters, right? We understood democracies need good journalism and state-sponsored journalism can be, the theory was, unbiased, um, unfettered by market forces. Now, people don't consume it. So, of course, we could do away with it because young people aren't even looking at it. Uh, They're not looking at any of us. So the question is, of course, if we think it matters and we think some form of this kind of journalism matters, how do we get them to see it? How do we you know, share it so that it does become part of our public policy framework, our our democratic framework. I don't know the answer to that, but that is, we can't, those two things have to coexist and that's the struggle we're in. Yeah, great insights. I, I would just add that, you know, even if necessity dictates that we need to move on from this grand bargain, which involved a degree of protection in the economy and a more active role for the state in, in regulated sectors in exchange for a type of capitalism that, you know, wasn't, narrowly focused on profitability, but took on this kind of public interest or national interest role, 
you know, even if that's coming, as you say, there are going to be inherent trade-offs in that transition. You know, we, we may get more dynamism, we may get more innovation, we may get more productivity, but it may mean that there is fewer services available to people in rural and remote communities, communities that can't be served based on market dictates alone. You know, the fact remains that my parents and a lot of Canadians my parents' age have Bell and financial services stocks and equities in their in their portfolios. They are at the core of their retirement plans. And I haven't checked to see what the markets are doing this morning, but I suspect in a world in which Bell announces that during the quarter they the company experienced something like a, a quarter reduction in, in profits, at least according to based on projections. I mean, that's going to have an impact. And so, as you say, I think it is a transition, but one hopefully that policymakers and business leaders are, are starting to grow attentive to, because I, one thing, as I said earlier, that struck me about this week in which we had Christia Freeland kind of admonishing business and business pointing the finger at her is that they it felt very stuck in a kind of grand bargain mentality. Yes, I agree with that. Uh, and it's it's facile a little bit. I mean, the thing I find frustrating about it is it's easy for the finance minister to say, business, do your part. And it's easy for business to say, well, we would, but we don't like the regulatory landscape. What's hard, of course, is for business to say, well, we have still record amounts of cash on the balance sheet and we should deploy it. And how do we want to deploy it? And let's be creative and let's take risks and despite the regulatory environment. And again, you know, I don't think any of this is personal. I don't think businesses or, you know, leaders are out there to try to do anything except maximize their the value of the entity that they're shepherding. And that's appropriate. But to your point, there are other externalities. There are other issues that should come into play and how they fit together is a really good question. We've talked before about the kind of lack of cooperation between business and um, and government and this is a place where I now may say we don't want to go back to that grand bargain. We don't want the sort of the backroom deals, even if they bring us a railroad in the end. We don't want that. Uh, but we should have some level of cooperation because otherwise Canadians stand by and say, who is running this thing? Who does know what's happening? If everybody's pointing a finger at somebody, uh, it seems to me that there's nobody in charge. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that since we spoke a couple of weeks ago and trying to discern the different factors that have contributed to the deterioration of business and government. We talked about some last week, the rise of populism, institutional changes, including the elimination of corporate donations. But the more and more I think about it, it may be that both sides are so destabilized by the erosion of the grand bargain, you know, mostly for factors outside of their control, like the rise of new types of technologies and so on. That that may actually be at the heart of the fractured business government relationship that they, you know, that both side feels like the other is failing to live up to the bargain without kind of appreciating that it's neither is kind of ultimately responsible for that, if, if that makes sense. And so Bell's announcement today is, you know, it can't be overstated. You know, obviously, there are real people affected. And I, I don't want to diminish that. I one you know, one's heart goes out to the affected workers. But the extent to which it, it is a kind of catalyst for this type of bigger picture conversation, I think, you know, it, it may ultimately represent some progress for public policymaking in Canada. Amanda, at the risk of going even higher level, but I'm really enjoying this conversation. I want to put another idea to you and, and get your reaction. Because reading the two essays over the past weekend at the Hub and, and then this exchange between Christia Freeland and business, I wonder the extent to which the debate is rooted in competing views about the right priorities for, for government itself. The Trudeau government came to office with the view that one of the biggest problems facing the country was inequality and, and social inclusion, and that government policy needed to a certain extent 
to subordinate economic growth in favor of promoting greater equality. And it's done that in a lot of ways for which it deserves credit, including, of course, the creation of the Canada Child Benefit, which has significantly reduced poverty amongst children. But I know that at least when I speak to investors and people in the business community, they would say that one of the inherent trade-offs with this reorientation to equity over, say, economic growth or efficiency is that the government has come to, in a, to a certain extent, vilify success. In that sense, how much do you think that this debate or these competing views are really ultimately about the proper focus of government policy itself? Yeah, I mean, I think it's right to say that there was an overarching ideology. I don't think our, that the uh, this particular federal government in Canada is alone in the world in that. There may be a slight overcorrection happening in the world to the understanding that we overcorrected in favor of free market capitalism. Uh, we did. We thought that globalism and free markets could take us all the way home. And it turns out there are limits uh, to the those forces and that we actually do need to rein them in. Do, and the fact that we would then overcorrect in the other direction seems simply to be human nature. Um, but yes, I think it's fair. And, you know, you're as a policymaker, you will have a, a better view of this. But I think it's absolutely fair to view the ideology of this government stated up front as a more interventionist one, a bigger government. Um, and when I say bigger government, although it is also true in their case that they expanded the size of government, I mean to play a bigger role in the lives of citizens. And so there you see suddenly, you know, this kind of intervening in what might be considered provincial affairs in a way that some provinces find very disruptive. And you find uh, back into the sort of supporting of new investments by way of um, you know billions and billions of dollars to uh, for profit entities to set up shop here, and of course the expansion of the public's the sort of the social service um, kind of net. And as you say, some of it has been without question valuable. The expansion of that uh, child benefit lifted kids out of poverty. The data is real. It's hard to argue with that kind of return on an investment. If you want to frame it that way, our tax dollars are well spent there. But to your point, it does. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about a bigger, more interventionist government. And then I guess I'll come back to if you're going to be a big interventionist government, you better get it right. And you better actually be producing results that people want. And by people, of course, as we talked about recently, we mean businesses. We mean the economic fabric of the country. It's what supports us all. It's how we all get up and go to work every day. If it's not working, that's how we feel it. Uh, and we feel it in other places too. We'll blame the government for high prices at the grocery store. If they if they want to be that involved, then sure, they're going to own the problem. Um, so that you can't have your cake and eat it too, I guess, is the problem for the big government mentality. And it's it should really, I think, be a partnership between government and the private sector in terms of the, the wheels that turn. Um, and if you if you really do separate the two, you're going to have a hard time moving the whole thing forward. Yeah, well, this has been a big picture conversation focused on some of the big intellectual currents that I think are underpinning a lot of the disruption that we're seeing in government and, and business. It's not precisely the type of conversation that listeners and viewers have grown accustomed to, where we talk sometimes about more meat and potatoes, economic issues. But I, I think it's important because I've gotten a lot out of it, Amanda. I think increasingly this understanding of the grand bargain and its successes and now its possible erosion it has economic, political and kind of social effects that I think we really need to understand. And then, as you say, although our politicians rarely talk in a hyper ideological language, I do think that what we've seen over the past 30 years or so is, as you say, 
government policy sort of moving from one direction to the other. And really what we ought to be focused on moving forward is a couple of things. First of all, how do we get that balance right? And then as you so ably documented in your series for us last year, the business of government, how do we make sure that government itself is set up to effectively deliver whatever we ultimately ask of it? And I think this underlying question of state capacity is something that's sort of shot through a lot of the work we do at the Hub, including this biweekly series. I want to thank you for joining me, Amanda. I, I benefited a great deal from today's conversation. I hope listeners and viewers did as well. And I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Always enjoy our conversation, Sean. Thanks. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with Amanda Lang, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your audio online and leave us a review and rating. You can also access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or visit our website at www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. 